Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Visit RCAT.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detail. Today, I am thrilled to welcome two guests from Lake Flato Architects with offices in San Antonio and Austin, Texas. My guests today are Dan Stein, AIA, IES, CSI, CDT, real happy to see that CSI, CDT, by the way, Design Performance and Director of Design Technology, and Melina Phillips, AIA Lead, APBDNC, Project Architect. Dan is a registered architect, director of design technology at Lake Plato, adjunct at North Dakota State University, author of 15, count them, 15 textbooks, and co-author of the AIA Climate Action Business Playbook. Dan is an AIA Coat Subcommittee member, AIA Climate Action, Climate Justice, and IES BIM Standards Committee Chair. You are a busy dude. Melina is a project architect at Lake Flato San Antonio office with 10 years of experience ranging from master plans to hospitality and civic projects. Though originally from Brazil, I saw that and I was like, oh, do you have family I can go visit? I so want to go to Brazil. <laughs> she has also lived in Bolivia, Colombia, and now the United States. Her broad worldview both fuels her interest and lends expression to her work in urban environments and civic studios. She was involved in Hotel Magdalena from 2014 to 2020 and from programming all the way through construction administration. So you learned a lot from that project. Incidentally, the project we're going to be talking about today is Hotel Magdalena in Austin, Texas. 
Located in the heart of Austin's South Congress neighborhood, Hotel Magdalena is the first mass timber boutique hotel in North America. It is approximately 104,000 square feet, of which 30,000 square feet is dedicated to unconditioned spaces, showcasing a major focus of the design, the central courtyard and surrounding mass timber porches. The prominent use of wood as the primary structural and finished material invites guests to connect with the landscape and reduces the project's overall carbon footprint. The client sought to leverage Austin's lake culture as well as the historical legacy of the site. This influenced the design team to enhance the outdoor experience by providing generous outdoor spaces surrounding a pool and lush natural landscape reminiscent of the popular Barton Springs. The mass timber structure also celebrated the history of the site as it is evocative of the former 1950s Austin Terrace Motel, also previously constructed of exposed heavy timber. The interiors of the project drew inspiration from the 1970s and its music scene, which I love about that area, an homage to the site's history as the Austin Opry House led by Willie Nelson himself. The variety of outdoor spaces with wide open corridors and terraces also provided a space that was safe for guests and locals to occupy and enjoy during the COVID pandemic. What's the story behind this project? You know, the history, the goals, the aspirations. Obviously, you said you worked on it for a number of years. So it it sounds like it was a treasure in the making. What's the background? From the beginning, the discussions were really focused on wanting to provide this amazing, authentic Austin experience. You know, the Austin friendliness, the music culture that you uh, talked about in the intro, the lake culture as well. And this was really key because of the overwhelming speed at which Austin had been growing and is still growing at, you know. Uh, I think it's now amongst the nation's fastest growing uh, large metropolitan area. And so it was really important for everyone involved to have this unique sense of place and that it be maintained and celebrated. And the hotel site really set us up to a great start because of, you know, the history that you also touched on and also the location because the hotel is right off of South Congress Avenue, which is a postcard of the city. And even with these latest developments, it still has that sense of old of the city of Austin. And so it was a really great setup for the whole project. And the history of the project is just, to me, has always been super fascinating. South Congress used to be the main roadway into Austin from the south. And so there were a lot of businesses that catered to automobiles, and and it was really lively. But then when 35 came about, all of that traffic got rerouted, the businesses fell into disrepair, and the site even became apartments at one point. But it was amazing that Willie Nelson, when he purchased 14 acres east of Congress, which included the hotel, and once he had had a falling out with the guy who owned the music venue downtown, he decided to turn the conference center that was on site into a music venue. And that was the legendary Austin Opry House, you know, who uh, hosted Tina Turner, Dolly Parton, like all these amazing people. And so it was just like such beautiful history to tap into that it just made the project from the get-go amazing to start. So let's, let's talk about what this hotel is all about. 
paint a picture of this hotel for me. You know, what is the building made of? What do the spaces look like? What are some of the finishes or types of materials you use throughout that make this unique and special? Yeah. Like I mentioned, you know, we wanted to have this authentic Austin experience. So we, we started with a, a local palette of materials, but the buildings are distributed on the perimeter of the site, creating this courtyard scheme. And so as you approach the site, you really don't see all this richness of the courtyard. It's really more of an urban exterior. And so you see these stucco volumes over limestone bases. You have dug for wood siding at the recessed porches. But then from a distance, you get the beautiful large canopies of these six heritage oaks that we preserved on site. It's really what anchored the design of the site because it was an existing site, right? And we wanted to preserve these trees. And so you see that from a distance, but it's not until you approach this mass timber porca share and you start walking your way up into the site around one of the live oaks that you encounter this amazing courtyard that was designed by Tenike landscape architects who we partner with a lot you'd like discover this oasis in an urban environment and you see the uh, mass timber porches on the perimeter again with the goal of recalling the lake houses and the natural springs that you find all over the texas hill country i'm a big fan of incorporating nature i actually just bought a town home last year and my backyard is a forest and a stream and it's one of the reasons I chose this townhome is to not feel like I'm in the, the concrete jungle. Yeah. And I love it. I sit out there all the time listening to the birds and the water. And I could imagine I would love this hotel. You know, during the pandemic, I mean, how much more valuable did all, did all these spaces um, become too? And so I'm sure you enjoyed your courtyard a lot <laughs> during that time. <laughs> Absolutely. So what about the interiors? Did you do anything special with the interiors or the rooms? Or if I walked in the door, what would knock my socks off? So uh, we worked together with Bunkhouse, who is the operator on the project on the interiors. And when you walk in, we're really trying to pull from that mid-century vibe. And the room is pretty simple, but we have featured tiled walls. They're handmade tiles from Kismet, and it really sets the color scheme for each room. And there are four color schemes, um, blue, green, red, and yellow. And that's the feature of the room. And then you see the Scott Newton photographs on the walls. And the rooms, our inspiration was the Judd Cube. And so we wanted to come in and have a really simple volume. So you walk in, and it's a tall floor-to-ceiling height. Uh, you see the underside of the mass timber exposed within the room and brings that warmth and then you see sky or greenery depending on what level you are on either side of the room so you have amazing daylight uh, you could open your windows and have cross ventilation through so really trying to pull that austin lake house vibe into the space it sounds like i'm gonna have to come to austin to yeah. see it darn <laughs> dan i'm gonna direct the next question to you so Mass timber is all the rage, but so is building performance. And hopefully it's going to stay that way forever. Talk to me a little bit about that on this project. And, and what are some things that you did or avenues you went down um, in consideration of that for this building? 
Well, a great transition from talking about how beautiful the building is to performance is to give your listeners a takeaway. There's a great book that was written by the late Lance Hosey. He was the chief impact officer at HMC Architects and passed away last year. And he wrote a book called The Shape of Green. And in that book, he basically emphasized the idea that green or sustainable or high-performing building (laughs) doesn't have to be ugly. It can be beautiful. And so that's, I think, what's embodied in Hotel Magdalena. And of course, to set the stage a little bit, 40% of the greenhouse gas emissions come from buildings or construction activities. So there's an opportunity to move the needle. And a lot of design firms are doing a really great job with operational carbon, which is the energy needed to operate the building. And that typically involves fossil fuels and consumption of fossil fuels. Um, or renewable energy that that can be used on site to reduce the energy use intensity required to operate the building. But as we continue to bring that down with AIA 2030 commitment that Lake Plato and and several other firms are members of, our goal is to get operational carbon to zero by 2030. And so as that begins to come down and zero out or even get net positive with making more renewables than the building consumes, we're now starting to focus more on embodied carbon. So that's where mass timber comes in. Mass timber has the ability to not only reduce embodied carbon, which is the energy needed to extract the materials, to manufacture them, to ship them to the site, but it also has the ability to sequester carbon. So it actually encapsulates carbon dioxide as the tree grows so you can get a credit basically for that in in the reduction of course that depends on how what the lifespan of the building is and if those materials will be reused at the end of the lifespan if if those materials go in the landfill that credit isn't really a real credit but if we look at the global warming potential of concrete and steel it's as you can imagine quite high the heat required to forge steel and the chemical reactions to create cement just have really high global warming potentials. So what we do is take a what we call a baseline. And we do that with operational carbon as well. There's a lot of a lot more information out there on that. Like ASHRAE 90.1 um, has a minimum code requirement for how, how good your HVAC system needs to be. Similarly, on the embodied carbon side, we'll take a look at the same building in steel or concrete. And so a typical boutique hotel like this would be all cast in place concrete from top to bottom to make it a really solid building and prevent sounds from transferring between rooms. So if we compare the global warming potential of the same building as cast in place concrete to mass timber, uh, we actually see a 38% reduction in global warming potential, which is a a really good number. We have a report on our website that uh, your listeners can go check out. It's in our investigations bucket. If you go to our lakeplato.com and you can read this embodied carbon report that actually has several project case studies. So showing exactly the reduction potential. Some projects uh, have much higher reduction potential, like up to 58%. So 
this is a really important topic. Again, it, it becomes more important as we get better at operational carbon and using renewable energy on site. Well, it's, it's, I have to say that number one, I really appreciate that your firm is sharing those case studies because I imagine quite a bit of work went into those case studies to make these comparisons and come up with those numbers. And not everybody would share that work with others. And we have an issue in this industry. I talk about it a lot on this podcast of being an industry that can't operate without working as a team, but yet we don't always do a good job to work as a team or to share information so that everybody can grow from that. So number one, I really, really appreciate that. So what would you say, and either one of you or both can answer this, was the biggest design challenge on this project and how did you solve it? You know, we had to go through a major value engineering effort on the project, which was a challenge for all parties, the developer, the operator, and the entire design team. But I'm really proud to be able to say that the essence of the project was kept. And I think it was really largely due to clear goals that were established in the beginning of the project and through our integrated design charrette. And there was a, a great meeting. I mean, it was a hard meeting when we have to look at the number and really think about how we're going to approach it. But it was a great meeting because uh, one of the developers, right before we started, brought a list of items that he called. It was something like, I wish I had written it down because it was so poetic, um, but it was something like the essence of the Magdalena Hotel. And he used that list to recall the initial vision for the project based on early conversations that he had had with his fellow developers, the operator, and even uh, David Lake, who was our principal in charge on the project. And it was it was just so good because I think it level set and before we started trimming the fat, you know, which is always a challenge. But it was, I think that was really valuable to see it come into play and, and even from the owner side. That's a great effort because you can trim the fat and still stay in that original essence. Oftentimes through a long design period, people kind of forget what drove them in the first place to get to wherever you were. Um, during construction, what would you say your biggest challenge was on the building of something maybe that came up that you didn't expect and you had to pivot? I think the one that was consistent throughout the entire process was how complex and tight the site was. So the site is about an acre, but it has 29 feet of grade change across it. And so the buildings have multiple finished floor elevations, etc. But doing the dance of getting the thing built in such a small space. And there, were, there was also construction happening on an adjacent site. It was another one of our projects. And so just the whole area was really congested and they had to even excavate the pool and then refill it. So they had enough staging area and by enough, I should say it's still very tight, but more staging area than they would have had. And then the other aspect was, so there's the hotel portion of the project, but we also have a residential portion of the project and it's a condo building and it is actually concrete structure because it's a condo building and the penthouse spanned from the condo side of the building over ho some hotel rooms as well. And so the combination of different uses, I mean, it was a challenge for addressing, for systems as we were coordinating them because you want 
to keep those units as separate as possible from everything else, but just the nature of doing a condo building as well. But what was really cool about that, it's what made the project financially feasible for the developers because the sale of those properties allowed their performer to work. So it was a really important part of it, even though it wasn't the main use of the project. The other really interesting thing that I forgot to mention related to the global warming reduction of the design of the building relates to the mass timber structure. So first of all, related to construction, there are some of the floor and wall systems that were prefabricated offsite, so higher quality finishes and tolerances. But uh, something that's rather unique in mass timber buildings even yet today is the use of DLT as a flooring and a wall system as a, compared to CLT or glue lamb. So those other systems have glue and nails and all of those things, you know, increase the global warming potential. A DLT, dowel laminated flooring, is essentially a bunch of wood laid on end stacked with no spacing. It's like a typical floor system, 16 inches on center. Basically, these are zero inches on center and then wood dolls that are inserted between them to hold it in place. So really efficient, just raw wood. With I'm sure there's some nails in there, but generally speaking, no nails and no glue. So we have two systems in the mass timber portion of the project. Uh, one is for the hotel guest rooms, and those are made of prefabricated stick walls that are spaced 15 feet on center with the dowel-eliminated timber deck that Dan was talking about. And then adjacent to it is the structure for the bridge and the walkways, which is actually a post and beam system, glue lamp post and beam system, with gapped panels as decking. And that's so that the wood can dry, you know, because it makes it so that you can use it on the exterior and, and so that it can dry and it, the water can flow through it. But the interface of the two systems was a big challenge during construction because typically the you know structure craft who was the engineer of record and the a builder for the mass timber project if it's a spec office they come in they erect the building they leave and they're done but this project for multiple reasons one is it's more systems heavy so there's a lot more coordination because every room requires systems instead of having two cores right and the other was the sequencing of being able to waterproof and flash between the two systems so there was a lot of handoff that had to happen between the two which was an extra challenge i still think that it was worth it (laughs) because the project is about the porches, and it was the most efficient way to get it done by using these two systems. Transitions are so absolutely key. And, and now working for a building enclosure consultant, I'm learning a whole lot about how important they really are and how much our industry doesn't understand how to really get a tight building and how to really have solid transitions. So, you know, shout out, RDH can help you. I I got to throw that in on occasion. So, Dan, did you use any unique processes or tech, you know, technology is kind of your thing. So, unique processes or technology in the course of this project, or maybe you just want to tell me about where we're going with technology and design, um, since that's totally your wheelhouse. Sure. Yeah, I could actually do both. So, um, 
backing up a little bit to this project, all of our projects are Revit, are modeled in Autodesk Revit. And to do our embodied carbon analysis, we typically use Tally, which is now owned by Building Transparency, but was originally developed internally at Cairn Timberlake. Tally allows us to associate global warming potential and other metrics to specific materials in our Revit model. And then we can try different things like the concrete versus the wood or the CLT versus the DLT. So that's really important. And another thing that we do quite a bit of is daylighting analysis to get optimal daylighting. There's a a product called Climate Studio that's an add-in to Rhino. Climate Studio just did a blog post on how we're using it really early in a project for a new middle school in, in Alamogordo, New Mexico, making substantial design changes early in the project to, to increase the quality of the lighting, reduce glare and less electric lighting, basically. Um, and that's true with energy modeling and embodied carbon analysis. We need to do these things early not later in the project, just to check a box so that we actually have the potential to change it. Because when we do it later, nobody wants to change the design. It's going to cost time and money. And one other really interesting thing that we're working on relates to another, actually, that middle school in New Mexico, we're actually using virtual reality where we're streaming the virtual reality experience over the internet from an Amazon AWS server to a wireless Oculus Quest 2 headset, and it's a fully rendered environment where you can walk around inside the building. So there's no computer next to you, and there's no cable going to the VR headset. So what essentially what's happening is VR streaming to your headset. You're turning your head in with the headset on, and it's sending that back to the server, the Amazon server, which could be a 1,000 miles away. And it's responding fast enough with you turning your head to update the rendered view and in the direction that you're looking. So lots of really cool technology from visualization to simulating design performance. Every Everything you do has a lesson to it, but every project you usually walk away with maybe one number one thing that I learned from this that maybe you would do differently next time or that you wouldn't do at all next time. What would you say your biggest lesson that you got from this project was? You know, stakeholder buy-in is so key to what we do. And when you're in these projects that take a really long time to get completed, it's kind of inevitable that you have new stakeholders that are added or personnel turnover or for whatever reason, you know, some of those members can change. And trying to navigate that and communicate well I think it can be an uphill battle, but it can also be good opportunities to revisit some of those initial clear goals. And so I think on a human level, that was one of my big takeaways. And then for a mass timber project on a technical level, you know, you're working with a finished product from basically day one when the structure goes in. And it's not what all of the trades are used to. <laughs> and there's a big challenge in that in, in trying to protect the work because, you know, one of the things that we learn through the process, you know, sometimes when you have finished product that goes in early, you board it up and you try to protect it. But we're in Texas. There's 
the sun that to think about and you can get staining on the wood so you really can't board up the entire building and and so it takes a lot of coordination reminder and really education on our part the contractor part uh, for all of the trades that are not used to using that system and so having those conversations as soon as possible so that we're all on the same page because it can be really difficult to address some of those areas that get damaged in the process. Um, I think a big thing that we need to focus on in the specification areas is red list materials. So potentially dangerous chemicals and focus on indoor environmental quality sort of lends itself. And maybe I'm jumping the gun too to your last question about what we would change if we had the ability to do that. So this, this is also that answer. I've, I've heard you ask that on other podcasts. But there's a great book by uh, Mary Robinson, I believe it is, on climate justice. That's the title of the book, Climate Justice. So talking a little bit in, in relation to that AI subcommittee that I'm on for climate action, climate justice, is the air quality and, and the materials that are in buildings that you know the public has to basically live their lives in. So uh, understanding things like red list materials and then also... Um, uh, forced labor where we're getting our products from is really important to have an awareness of. And a lot of people don't, just like embodied carbon, we are focused on operational carbon. And as, as we continue to develop these processes and understandings, we can continue to make the world a better place. What Dan doesn't know is I changed my last question. <laughs> I just I just got a wild hair and you guys are for the first for the first podcast are getting a different final question. So I typically ask if you could change anything in the industry, what would it be? That's been my up until today, my my final question. But today I'm going to ask you, what is your world domination statement? Personal or professional, what mark do you hope? to leave, uh, you know, because I also have on my desk, I'll show it to you, my, my folder or my journal plans for world domination. <laughs> nice. And I even tweet under the hashtag total world domination. Um, how do you plan to change the world? And understanding that no one person can change everything in the world, but we can all make a difference in what we do every day. So your final question today for each of you is what is your world domination statement? Who's willing to jump into that pool first? <laughs> no pressure. Um, you know, I think that in general, um, my goal is to be a good steward of what I'm given or what I have to manage. And that can be many things, right? It can be materials like Dan was talking about. It can be the site, you know, our client investment, but also like relationships. I think in general, like, to learn how to be a better steward each day and to make people's experiences of working and living in cities better, connecting, you know, people. And because, you know, as we all know, we're moving to cities more and more. And what does that connection look like? And there's a reason it's our shared experience, what's outside, right? So providing opportunities for people to connect with each other. Dan, you got some time to think there since I went and totally messed up your plan. 
it's funny, Melina and I didn't talk about this, uh, and we didn't know the the twist question, but uh, mine is similar. It's just to do better personally. In fact, just yesterday, I was in a lift ride from this convention I was at in Fort Worth to the airport and sitting in the back of a Tesla. And I was talking with the driver and we were literally just talking about how we can just do things better personally, right? Your vote counts, what you do is cumulative and can make the world a better place. And, you know, I have this sense monitor in my power panel and this flume monitor on my water meter that gives me information that I can react to be able to improve my personal energy use and water consumption, which is a lot more important here now that I don't live on the largest freshwater lake in the world when I live <laughs> in Minnesota. So yeah, just like Melina said, good steward and just doing better personally. It doesn't necessarily have to be a mark that everybody knows about, I guess, is, is the main point. Oh boy, you're preaching to the choir. I've always said it's all about the people and it's the little things. At the end of the day, the little things you do in every moment of every day and how you connect with people. And and you can feel it when you meet people. I can feel it with the both of you. And I can see you too. So of course, I love to read people, but that heart and that commitment and oftentimes that difference you make, that world domination or these little tiny things that nobody really ever sees, but somehow you're infecting other people or you're creating a better built environment or you're doing all of these things and at the end of the day the people in those little things are what really accumulate into this whole huge thing so keep that up thank you so so much for agreeing to be my final episode of season two you guys are the closing episode so i'm hoping you guys take me over the top of a hundred thousand downloads because we're almost there I'm going to count on you, but I have a feeling this is going to be a popular episode. Uh, But I really appreciate you joining me today. Thank you so much for having us. Uh, What an honor (laughs) to be here with you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around RCAT.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T.com. If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.